0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth, it makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. Saturday, an apparent chemical weapons attack killed 25 people and injured more than 500 in Syria.
2: We talk with Jason Baker, an officer in the United States Air Force, about what Americans need to know about our military operations throughout the world. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance.
1: Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We wanted to remind everyone that you can subscribe to our weekly email at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. We've got some exciting changes to that email coming up. And right now, if you sign up, you receive a free ebook of our Pantsuit Primers Foreign Policy Edition. So check that out. Today, we're going to talk about news coming out of North Korea, Ronnie Jackson's nomination to be the head of the VA, and then Beth is going to talk about the tragic news out of Syria with Jason
2: Baker in the news segment after she shares a little Mueller primer update. Sarah, do you want to talk about what's coming out of North Korea? I will let you know that My interview with Jason Baker has two parts. We're going to talk about Syria today, and on Friday, we'll get more of his perspective on North Korea because Jason just returned from a military stay in South Korea.
1: I just thought the news out of North Korea was a nice, positive piece of foreign policy news in contrast to the horrific news coming out of Syria because they agreed to discuss turning over their nuclear weapons, nuclear weapon capacity, which was a condition of sitting down with the United States. So that seems positive. It seems like a step in the right direction. And I will take that in the face of the news coming out of Syria.
2: I agree with you completely. All of this leads to our conversation about the VA a little bit. We have not yet discussed, other than the strange circumstances surrounding David Shulkin's departure from the VA, we haven't discussed uh, President Trump's replacement for david shulkin who will have to be confirmed and it's not clear that he will be Mm -hmm. but president trump has nominated ronnie jackson a physician who is a military officer widely admired guy he's been made fun of a little bit because of the press conference where he talked about how fantastic the president's health is but listen he's just doing his job
0: Mm -hmm.
2: this is a this is a well-credentialed person the question is can you be a great doctor and a great military officer and still have the skill set to run an organization as gargantuan and complicated and entrenched as the VA? And I think that we need to get out of the space of talking about people as like you're a good person or a bad person. With the VA, that's a really unique and difficult skill set. Probably only a handful of people in the country really have the skill set to run the VA and do a good job. I'm not sure that he's one of them.
1: Well, and continuing on with our theme this episode, which is let's ask people who know what they're talking about when it comes to our military. One of our listeners, Julie, wrote in. who She is a VA nurse, and she says, I'm an oncology nurse practitioner at the VA, and I just heard about Shulkin being fired, and I'm so worried that the powers that be are going to try to keep defunding the VA, and our patients are so complex, and when given the resources, the VA provides such excellent comprehensive care. We are the largest hospital system in the country, the largest training site for doctors, and we provide excellent primary care. VA patients who are diagnosed with lung cancer and colon cancer are diagnosed at earlier stages than patients diagnosed in the community. There is published data that shows this because we are so good at screening and preventative care, something you don't really hear much about. At RVA, we started routinely offering low-dose CT scans for lung cancer screens in 2013, right after the data was published showing a survival benefit while private sector patients couldn't get the screening for quite a while because the insurance companies would pay for it and there are so many other things we provide. I think that's such a good point. I think that the VA often just, it's all the negative press that everybody pays attention to. I believe Shulkin. I think that he was fired because they're trying to move to privatization. And I think that would be a disaster for the VA.
2: You know, I recognize how many problems the VA has. The wait times are unacceptable. There are wonderful things about the VA, as Julie points out. There are difficult things as well. I really thought President Obama's appointment of Bob McDonald was an inspired choice to lead the VA. Now there are two biases that I should disclose about that. One, I spent my professional career working in Cincinnati where Procter & Gamble looms large in the corporate community. So I have a particular kind of understanding and respect for what it means to have run Procter & Gamble as Bob McDonald did prior to going to the VA. Secondly, I worked with Bob McDonald's son and have a lot of respect for him. So those two things probably lend some bias to my opinion. But running an organization like Procter and Gamble to me seems like a pretty good analogy for running an organization like the VA, because the VA isn't just hospitals. I was talking with Jason Baker, our guest in a moment after our interview, and he said, "You know people forget that student loans come through the VA." Mm. Loans for housing come through the VA. There are so many components of the VA beyond just health care, and the health care itself is enormously complex. Mickey Kendall wrote this in The Washington Post. Veterans Affairs isn't just hospitals treating injuries. It's compensation and pensions. It's mental health care rehab and programs to house homeless veterans. It is a massive department with a staff of almost 378,000 people, a small city of workers that serves about 22 million veterans and their families. in raw numbers that means every staff member has 58 veterans relying on them to do their jobs in actual numbers it means that every veteran services representative can have a caseload in the hundreds it's a hard job made worse when the people making decisions about policy have no idea what the population being served needs or how to provide it and it's just one aspect of the multi-step process required to help veterans build a new life and to me what is so problematic is that no one is being given enough time to do good work mm-hmm. at the VA. Mm-hmm. I feel like Bob McDonald's tenure wasn't long enough to do what I think he was capable of doing for that organization. And that's certainly true about David Shulkin. This is not going to turn on a dime.
1: Well, and he had th- he was loving that guy for like five and a half minutes. Shulkin was mm-hmm. getting great press. He was, get- he was doing well. But I honestly, I think Shulkin's right. I think the second they realized they weren't going to be able to shove him towards privatization, which should absolutely not be the number one priority of the VA, then he was out.
2: Because we have a lot to share today, we're going to go ahead and compliment the other side. So, Sarah, who is on your mind this week?
1: We talked about this at the Kentucky Young Democrats Convention, but y'all, Trey Gowdy, I love free range Trey Gowdy. I'm all about it. Trey Gowdy did a vice interview, and he was just. He's out of cares, I think. He's just, he doesn't have any left. He's like counting the trips to the airport till he's done in Congress. He was very honest about where he failed, what the problem with Congress's, uh, like, what's the problem in Congress that leads to this terrible environment in which nothing can get accomplished? My pop psychology reading of that interview is like, he thought, okay, if I play the part and I do what they ask of me partisan-wise, when we're in power, we'll get this, get stuff done. And then they came to power, and he was like, oh, my God, it's worse. I'm getting out of here. And I just respect his honesty. And we talked a lot about the Kentucky Young Democrats. Like, if you want bipartisanship, which we all say we do, but we have to really— Believe that, then you have to understand. Like, there can't be yeah, Trey Gowdy. Yeah, but he's terrible. Yeah, but like, we're not going to agree with him all the time. But he was honest, and we don't really want people like Trey Gowdy pushed out if they are people of integrity, even if we disagree with them. And after that interview, I got to say, I believe Trey Gowdy to be a person of integrity, and I'm sad he's leaving Congress.
2: So, speaking of integrity, I wanted to compliment Democrats in Connecticut who have been calling for the resignation of Elizabeth Etsy. We haven't talked about this story. It is a really disturbing story. It's so disturbing. Oh, my God. So Elizabeth Etsy, congressional representative, had a male chief of staff. She learned in 2016 that that chief of staff had harassed and threatened to kill a female staff member in her office. Female staff member began as a scheduler in her office and kind of worked her way up. And he left her over like 50 voice messages. It it is really disturbing what this young woman endured at the hands of Elizabeth Etsy's chief of staff. And Elizabeth Etsy did not immediately commence an investigation. Eventually he resigned. She entered into a non-disclosure agreement with him. He got a cash payment in connection with his resignation. She says that was on advice of the uh, office within Congress that's responsible for these kinds of matters and it may well have been but this is wrong Mm
0: -hmm. and
2: I think it's a really hard thing to hold people in your party accountable these days and I have to say that I think the Democratic Party is doing a good job of that and I think in Connecticut the fact that some of the highest level Democrats in the state are calling for her resignation shows the party to be one of integrity around these issues now I can I understand again, in connection with the yeah, but there are going to be people who hear this and say, yeah, but the Clintons again, we want people to evolve. We mm-hmm. want them to move on. And this to me is an indication that the Democratic Party has learned some lessons of the past and is going to hold its members accountable for this kind of action. And I hope the Republican Party takes a lesson.
1: And as a Democrat, I'm here for it.
2: As promised, before we go into our main segment, I want to give you a Mueller investigation update. When last we talked Team Mueller had filed a superseding indictment against Paul Manafort, who was, for a brief period of time, the chairman of the Trump campaign. And you might recall that that indictment charged Manafort with crimes connected to Manafort's work on behalf of the Ukrainian government and specifically on behalf of then-Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych and the Party of Regions, which is the pro-Russia party in Ukraine it is very clear that Russia has been involved in Ukrainian elections, has been involved in funding Viktor Yanukovych and the Party of Regions. And so that is the connection between Manafort, Ukraine, and Russia as it relates to the 2016 election. There are a lot of dots left to be connected there, but just on a surface level, It's not difficult to put those pieces together. And if you'd like more information about that, you can check out some of my bonus content on Patreon, where I've talked a lot about what's happened in Ukraine. Okay, so charges filed against Manafort. Manafort moved to dismiss those charges. And a motion to dismiss to the court in a criminal proceeding says, even if you believe all of the facts outlined by the prosecution, we should not be here as a legal matter for these reasons. And these reasons, according to Manafort, are that Robert Mueller was not properly appointed by Rod Rosenstein, that Rod Rosenstein did not clearly delineate the scope of the Mueller investigation. And to the extent that the Mueller investigation has a scope, the charges against Manafort are outside that scope. So Robert Mueller's team responded to Manafort's motion to dismiss and said, listen, we were appointed by a proper order from Rod Rosenstein, who you'll remember was acting as the attorney general because Jeff Sessions had recused himself from anything related to Russian election interference. And we have been acting according to that authority. And the memo that the Mueller team filed describes the balancing act going on in the special counsel statutes. Because the special counsel statutes say the special counsel has to be appointed for a purpose. In addition, the special counsel can investigate federal crimes that are related to the investigation of that purpose. So you don't want the special counsel to have to formally seek new authority for every lead the special counsel might follow or every investigative step. You also want accountability and oversight and limitation of what the special counsel does. And so the memo goes to great lengths in saying that has happened here. We have been in touch with Rosenstein. We have been in touch with the Department of Justice. We are checking in. When something comes up that we didn't anticipate, we're asking, should we pursue this? What has made a lot of news is that the response to Manafort's motion to dismiss attaches a memo written by Rosenstein on August 2nd, 2017, that had not previously been in the public eye. So Rosenstein writes the appointment order and says he wants this investigation about Russian election interference, and it was very broad, and we read parts of it on the podcast. This memo gives more specific information about what he wants investigated. The memo is heavily redacted, but it includes specifically, and I'm just going to read from the memo here, allegations that Paul Manafort Committed a crime or crimes by colluding with Russian government officials with respect to the Russian government's efforts to interfere with the 2016 election for president of the United States in violation of United States law. Or committed a crime or crimes arising out of payments he received from the Ukrainian government before and during the tenure of President Viktor Yanukovych. I think this is not as bombshell as maybe it's been reported Except in that it indicates that the FBI's investigation was well underway by the time Robert Mueller was appointed, that his team did not start with a blank slate, that as Comey testified, the FBI knew lots of things at that point, was following lots of leads. Everyone was trying to figure out whether and how pieces fit together. And so when Rosenstein appointed the special counsel, he had a handle on what some of those leads were and he wanted certain things investigated. And Paul Manafort and specifically the kinds of crimes that Paul Manafort has been charged with were part of his purpose in appointing Robert Mueller. And as the memo in opposition to the motion to dismiss says – An investigation of possible links and or coordination between the Russian government and its political interference campaign and individuals associated with the campaign of President Donald Trump would naturally cover ties that a former Trump campaign manager had to Russian-associated political operatives, Russian-backed politicians, and Russian oligarchs. It would also naturally look into any interactions they may have had before and during the campaign to plumb motives and opportunities to coordinate and to expose possible channels for surreptitious communications, and prosecutors would naturally follow the money trail for Manafort's Ukrainian consulting activities. Because investigations of those matters was authorized, so was prosecution. Given that Manafort's receipt of payments from the Ukrainian government has factual links to Russian persons and Russian associated political actors, and that exploration of those activities furthers a complete and thorough investigation of the Russian government's efforts to interfere in the 2016 election, and any link and or coordination with the president's campaign. The conduct charged in the indictment comes within the special counsel's authority to investigate any matter that arose or may arise directly from the investigation. So that's a quote from the memo. I think Team Manafort is stretching a lot in making this argument. I also want to say... This is the kind of thing that you're supposed to do if you're a defense lawyer. So, again, nothing highly unusual here. The other aspect, just to give you a complete picture of the legal questions of the response to the motion to dismiss, is that Robert Mueller says even if Manafort were right that the special counsel wasn't properly authorized or exceeded the scope of his authority in these charges. Mueller says that Manafort doesn't get to complain about it because the special counsel statutes don't create enforceable rights for criminal defendants. Those statutes aren't designed to give a criminal defendant an out when they've been violated. The statutes are just there to tell the Department of Justice how to conduct its own affairs. So that gets pretty lawyerly, but I think it is good context and an interesting thing to know. So Manafort, like the rest of us, had not seen the Rosenstein memo. His lawyers went to the court and said, we need some additional time to process this lengthy response that the Mueller team filed to process what this memo means. And so the court gave them three additional days. Now Manafort's response is due on April 12th. After that, the matter should be fully briefed and the court will make a decision on whether the charges against Manafort will go forward or not. It is. Really difficult for me to imagine that Manafort will be successful on this motion to dismiss. I don't see a way that this doesn't go forward. Related note, Manafort has also filed a civil suit challenging Mueller's authority which his attorneys say is to prevent more charges and investigation against him, not to try to end run the criminal process to get the pending charges dismissed. The reporting from the civil case suggests that the judge is very skeptical of this civil suit. So I imagine that it will not survive very long. But it gets confusing because when you see notes and especially tweets about what's going on with Manafort, it can be easy to confuse the criminal and the civil suit. So I want you to know that there's one of each. Mueller has filed criminal charges against Manafort. Manafort is trying to get those charges dismissed. In addition, Manafort's team has filed a civil suit against Mueller saying, essentially, leave me alone. Don't do anything else. Finally, in the criminal proceeding, Manafort has moved to suppress evidence found in a storage locker because the first time an FBI agent peeked into that storage locker and saw files and files and files, the agent did not have a warrant. An employee at the storage locker facility, as I understand it, allowed that agent to take a look, and then the agent goes and gets a warrant, and they come back and get the evidence. Probably this motion is a loser. Because the FBI agent probably reasonably assumed that the person who led him in the storage locker had the authority to do that. It is hard for me, again, to imagine that Manafort wins this motion, but it's the kind of motion that his lawyer should be filing. This is how our process works. So if you see stories about that, it is about evidence and search and seizure and the proper conduct of the government in the course of an investigation like this, all well within the range of normal. Next update is on our friend Alex Vanderzwan, one of the most recent people to arrive on the scene in the Mueller investigation. As we discussed a few episodes ago, Alex Vanderzwan was a lawyer at the Skadden Arps firm in London. He speaks Russian, and so was part of helping Rick Gates and Paul Manafort coordinate with Ukrainian business people. And Russian investigators in looking at the trial of Yulia Tymoshenko, writing a report about that trial that helped make the Ukrainian government look better. That's the very short an oversimplified version of the facts. So Vanderswan lied to the FBI about the contacts he had had with Rick Gates specifically, and he withheld some evidence from the FBI. In the course of his sentencing proceedings, he pled guilty to the charges of lying to the FBI. In the course of his sentencing proceedings, his lawyers said, listen, a couple of days later, he realized this was the wrong thing to do. He came clean, He lied because he was afraid he was going to get in trouble with his law firm and lose his job, which he did. And he's a good guy and he has a baby on the way and his family loves him and misses him and he doesn't have any income right now. He has suffered enough. Please don't incarcerate him. And the Mueller team said, he's the son-in-law of a Russian oligarch. He has plenty of money. He knew this was wrong when he did it. He knew this investigation was of international importance. He lied anyway. Don't fall for the Poor Pitiful Me Act. And so he was sentenced to 30 days in jail and fined $20,000. In the course of the sentencing, the judge said incarceration was necessary to deter others from lying in an investigation of international importance. The judge also said his remorse is somewhat muted, to say the least. I think he did not come across as a very sympathetic character. There are opinion pieces, which we'll link in the show notes, describing him as having slicked back hair and just the perfect pocket square showing. And the prosecution talked about how he had a warped sense of morality, that he had gotten too close to Gates and Manafort. So some kind of interesting reporting coming out about that. I think it's pretty significant that the first person to be sentenced in the Mueller investigation On what is relatively minor compared to lots of other charges that have come out of this investigation is going to do jail time. If this guy who lied a few days later came clean, provided the evidence, cooperated, gets 30 days in jail, one can imagine that there are harsher sentences coming around the bend. Two more quick things I want to mention. First, that the Mueller investigation seems to be having an impact beyond the criminal charges that prosecutors are filing. I just want to read this from Politico. Shockwaves created by Mueller's 10-month probe couldn't help but have emboldened the Treasury Department this week as it slammed Russian President Vladimir Putin with a bundle of sanctions where it hurts. The pocketbooks of seven of his most faithful oligarchs and 12 of their companies. Working in consultation with the State Department, Treasury applied sanctions to another their 17 senior Russian government officials. In its announcement, Treasury linked the Kremlin's malign agenda directly to the sanctioned elites. And those sanctions, as you might recall, were mandated by Congress when it passed veto-proof legislation last year. They also included sanctions against Oleg Deripaska, a Manafort client who paid Manafort to develop a confidential strategy plan for the Putin regime. Now, truly the last thing, it was leaked this week that Mueller has told President Trump that President Trump is a subject, not a target, in Mueller's investigation. There are a lot of nuances to the way you talk about who is a subject and who is a target in criminal proceedings. My vastly oversimplified version is that this means the president's conduct is of interest to the Mueller team. But sitting here today, the Mueller team does not think of him as someone who is going to be a defendant eminently. It's not a great thing to be the subject of an investigation. It's also better to be the subject than to be a target. I think that Trump advisors and lawyers are still right to worry about whether the president would obstruct justice or lie in a conversation with Robert Mueller, I think that conversation is bound to take place. So I will leave it there for today, and we will keep you updated. A new figure is emerging in the reporting about this investigation, a gentleman named Konstantin Kalimnik, who is believed to be the person A referenced in filings against Gates Manafort and Alex Vanderswan, And I'm going to talk more about him on Patreon. So if you're interested, you can hop over there. And next up, we are delighted to share with you our conversation with Major Jason Baker, who is an officer in the United States Air Force. I am here with Jason Baker in a conversation that's been a long time coming. We have been corresponding about having you on the podcast on Twitter for over a year, I think, Jason. So can you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and uh, why you're here today?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Thanks for having me. Um, it has been about over a year, maybe even two now, I actually found you guys on your show while I was deployed, kind of during the middle of that election where I was. it was nice to find uh, some nuanced, uh, calm discussion about politics. Um, but I'm an Air Force officer, a major in the Air Force, um, have been in for 12 years now. I, uh, I'm what the Air Force calls an air battle manager, which is kind of one of those jobs maybe that sounds way cooler uh, than what it actually is maybe. But essentially I am trained in sort of putting air force assets in the right place at the right time. Uh, and that varies over the course of a career and uh, have been more involved with like big picture planning as my career has gone on. Um, but I uh, was in Iraq Syria working with that in the ISIS fight uh, just a couple summers ago and actually just less than a week ago returned uh, from South Korea where I was doing some planning there. So, uh, it's a pleasure to be on with you. And I love interacting on your Twitter feed about uh, just sort of the place of the military in the world and how that civilian military connection kind of works in this country. And uh, we'll probably just also preface here that obviously anything that I say today is my opinion as an experienced guy who has some education, but uh, definitely not speaking for the Air Force or the government in any way.
2: Understood. And Jason has written for our blog a couple of times. We'll link to his posts in our show notes so you can get a a bigger sense of his commentary. And I, I always find your perspective to be really valuable. A theme in our conversations over the past two years has been that there is such a disconnect today between the average American and the United States military In part because of how complex the missions have become, in part because of how many places in the world we are deploying military members. It's not that sense of we all understand what the missions are and where everybody is. Can you talk a little bit as someone who is actively serving the country about what you wish more Americans understood about our military today?
0: Yeah. So uh, I really like talking about the civilian military relations, and it's kind of a twofold issue where there's one, it's the whole interaction between the military and the government and our civilian leaders itself. Um, And we can definitely talk about that. But I think one of the more important things is how does the everyday citizen view the military and what we do? You know, you think back to a World War II or a Vietnam, it was very clear, like people were deploying to Europe to fight Nazis. And when the Nazis are gone, the war is over. And we don't really fight that sort of enemy anymore. And so people are often confused about what the military entails or what we're doing. Twelve years in now, I'll, I'll still go home. Maybe I visit home after a deployment, and people are like, "So are you back for good now?" I'm like, "Well, I mean, I'm back for now. I'm not really back for good. I can't say I'm never going to go anywhere again. On, you know, until the day I leave the service or retire." Um, and so, I think it's important that people understand, you know, the military. We're not out looking for a fight. We're not looking. Nobody wants to go do these things. Um, and you know, you and I have talked about on Twitter a lot how quite often people have this view of you know, the military being the heroes and, and I'll get thanked for people's freedom you know, if I wear my uniform to the store. And I think there was this really great document wrote in the late 1700s that that's what gave you your freedom. Um, and it's, and it's, I guess it's uncomfortable at times is sort of where I would begin that conversation is you know, we're just a tool of our national power we're not this almighty institution, nor really should we be. And so it's confusing at times to sort of weigh that how the public views you versus what it is that you actually do.
2: That's something that I've heard from every person that I've ever been close to who served in the military, that real discomfort with turning the military into a a group of heroes. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
0: I mean, I live, I'm in down in Georgia now. I grew up in the Midwest, in a small town. And Georgia has kind of been this culture shock for a lot of reasons. But one of them is there are a lot of people in military service down here. And it it is a, the the town that I live in has a a saying that they use everywhere that every day in middle Georgia is armed forces appreciation day. And a lot of thanking our heroes and supporting our heroes. And uh, I really am actually really uncomfortable with that word. Um, I say all the time that you know, I don't want to become a hero. I, I will perform in a situation that may require it if I needed to. But, you know, most military people do not want to be put in a position where heroes are required. You know, heroes fought and died at Normandy and, and they fought and they fight and die now in, in the current fights that we're in. But, you know, hero usually entails that somebody didn't come home. Um, and, and that's a that's a tough position to put people in. But I also, so a part of it is a sort of, uh, you know, uh, not wanting to think that you're more than you are, that you're just a piece in the puzzle. Um, but I think it also then leads to some problems where we put people on pedestals and either people think they need to be more than they are or that we can't really ever say a bad word about the military or, or question what's happening. Um, because quite often I'll come home and, you know, you can tell maybe a family member or a friend wants to maybe criticize you know, Iraq war policy, or should we keep doing something in Afghanistan? And it's like, they don't quite want to say that to me. Because, oh, well, then all these things that Jason has done, they must, you know, that that must be insulting him. And I view it as quite the opposite, as we've discussed many times that it's okay to say, you know what, what is what is my military doing right now for my country? Why are these people going to fight and die?
2: Yeah, it's hard to it's hard for me as a civilian to talk about this, because I have that instinct of We have to show nothing but appreciation for our troops. And I feel that. And I think it's okay to feel nothing but appreciation for individual service members and to speak critically as a whole or thoughtfully, not just critically, but thoughtfully on the whole about what's happening with the American military across the world, because it is really complicated. It is hard to follow. Mm -hmm. I had such a difficult reaction to the president's remarks this week. I want to say, as critical as I am of President Trump often on the podcast, I have a real sense of sympathy for how he talks about Syria. I understand why he really wants to be out of that, really feels like he was handed a disaster that has no good solutions. I understood it when he said We've been here for all these years and spent all this money, and what do we have to show for it? And at the same time, that comment felt like a gut punch to me because I thought of all the people who have been there all those years and all the families who have sacrificed as people have been there for all those years. And I'm sure there's a lot to show for it that we just don't understand as Americans. And that, to me, really crystallized the difficulty in having these conversations about the military. I wonder how you reacted to those remarks.
0: I I agree with most of of what you said. Um, uh, Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, when he was when he was in the office, had a quote where he said, when you're asking Americans to die, you have to be able to explain it to them, explain it in terms of what the national interest is. Um, And so I think for a lot of people, we know we're in Iraq and Syria. Iraq is a little bit more clear. We're trying to stabilize things. Um, well, for the past 15 years now, we're trying to stabilize that. And it's a little bit clear because it's like ISIS is there. We need to get rid of them. We basically are, have, and that's a little bit easier to understand. Syria is complicated because people hear, well, we're fighting ISIS. Then they also hear the Syrian civil war. You know, Well, what, is, what does that have to do uh, with us? Um and I guess where I always kind of come in, you know, my politics aside, I, I, I stay out of that in my professional view. And, and I mean, even as you have seen, I, I'll, I'll take a swipe at either side. I'm independent, not because I have to be, I just kind of where I've fallen in life. But the civilian military relations in this country kind of give the Department of Defense a really wide latitude to influence policy before a decision is made. But then once a decision is made by the commander in chief, it's sort of salute smartly and and here you go, we're on our way. Um, And then that's where that whole, you know, the military wants to know that the civilian leadership has our backs. And we also want to know that, or I think that the public should want to know, you know, why are they being asked uh, to operate? Um, You know, we've talked about, again, on Twitter, uh, because apparently I'm on Twitter too much, uh, That authorization for the use of military force that was signed by Congress um, in 2001 after 9-11, hey, we're going to take care of the Taliban we're going to take care of Al-Qaeda. I don't think anybody would have disagreed that authorizing President Bush at the time to do that was a good thing. Uh, A year later, they updated it to include things with Iraq sanctions. And now 16 years later, we're still authorizing most of these uses of, well, all of these uses of forces in the name of counter-terror on a 16-year-old uh, authorization. And so what that means to me is that, uh, is it being stretched? Do these things still relate to what we originally planned? But what it ultimately means is if that doesn't get updated about the next year or two, we're going to have uh, men and women fighting and sometimes dying who weren't even born when that was signed, um, and I, to me, that would, like when I realized that recently, like oh my goodness, like that certainly things have changed enough since then that maybe we should update it um, to where it spells out what is our national interest in Syria? Why are people dying there? Why, by the time your listeners listen to this, might we probably have had airstrikes in Syria in, in light of that chemical attack? Um, I'm not saying that we should or shouldn't. I'm just saying what the strategy is for it should be better understood by the American people.
2: Well, it gets to your point about civilian leadership of the military, right, in the United States, because I can't imagine being overseas knowing that you're there facing the possibility of injury, death, coming home without people who are there with you when Congress members are too afraid to take a vote authorizing you to be there. And I was reading this morning about how um, the risk of injury and death is increasing post-sequestration, that some of the cuts made to military spending have had very real-world consequences for the military. And I think this is really complicated for American citizens as well, because on the one hand, when you hear the president talking about increasing military funding the re, you know my personal reaction can be yikes do we want to do that is that do we really want to ramp up our aggression in the world but then when i think about it and read about the consequences of of military members being inadequately funded today i'm with him 100% i don't want i don't want it to be more dangerous for you to get on an airplane
0: the military funding thing is a, is difficult um I talk about this with my wife sometime where I'm, all my various political views, one thing that's fairly constant is I'm a pretty fiscally conservative guy. And even being a military member, I often think, well, do we really need that much more money? But then, uh, I mean, I don't have exact numbers in front of me or anything, but uh, aviation incidents and military and deaths and accidents are way up in the last few years. Um, And, you know, a lot of that is People are busy at ops tempo. They don't have as much time to be at home and train then. Um, airframes are getting older. A lot of people are leaving, though. The pilots that can go and the airlines are hiring for the first time in a while, and you know, they say, you know what? I'm never home. My wife and kids never see me. For a lot of them, that's really the only reason, and that's fine, and I, I have no problem with that. But I think also for a lot of them, it goes back to that strategy thing and what are we doing? They're like, and I don't even know why I'm gone so much and to what end and so then there's the less experience and there's less you know uh, experienced guys teaching younger guys and a younger force and you know that that can lead to these accidents sometimes um i i fly as a a large portion of my job i'm not a pilot but but fly on uh air crew and you know it 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 crosses your mind when you see this many accidents going on of you know are, are we the the best funded that we can be but it's difficult to make the argument because people hear military spending and they kind of jump to, oh, more adventurism in the Middle East or or elsewhere.
2: So let's return to Syria for a second. Um, you alluded to this, that there are many dimensions of Syria. And here's my understanding. I'd love for you to help our listeners and, and me in, <laughs> increase our depth of understanding here. So I see it as in one sense... You have ISIS strongholds in Syria and throughout the Middle East. And, and as you said, the United States and other countries have come together and done a pretty good job limiting ISIS's ability to increase its territory in the Middle East, which includes parts of Syria. Aside from that, but related, is the, the longstanding Syrian civil war where you have an oppressive dictator and rebels trying to oppose that dictator. And you have Iran and Russia involved essentially as allies of that dictator, although Russia likes to have it both ways sometimes as it relates to Assad. And those two things, ISIS on the one hand and Assad on the other, do not directly intersect. But the situation created by Assad in Syria has made it very easy for ISIS to use Syria as a battleground. Tell me what I've got right and wrong about that summary.
0: So that's, I mean, you basically that that was the good Reader's Digest version of it. That um, I mean, a lot of casual observers of Syria or uh, you know people who don't follow that aspect of the news as closely um, would forget that really the the civil war there post Arab Spring sort of predated ISIS by about two years, um, where you know the Arab Spring occurred um, and people took to the streets in Syria and they decided. the the government there, uh, the Assad regime decided to try to put that down and the people fired back for lack of a better term. A lot of Syrian uh, military, um, you know, defected to to the uh, sort of rebel cause. And, you know, they've been fighting then all this time and the violence has gotten worse and worse. Um, There's there's, uh, evidence that shows that Assad even then tried to release some people from prison and things like that, that he knew were extremists, knowing they would fight against him, but then trying to radicalize these groups so much that it would make it hard for Western countries to to join, join in with them. Um, and that's why you really didn't see the West get more involved until ISIS, like you said, used that sort of disarray and uh, unhappiness with the government and the fact that the government didn't control a lot of areas. As a sort of a footbed uh, to get their their foot in the door in that part of the country, um, and so while I'm not often a fan of, I'm not a big nation building guy. I don't think we can force democracy on people. Um, you know, we can't we can't deliver democracy through the the doors of a B-52. Um, but I am a big build stability guy um, because as much as I hate seeing what is happening. To these people with chemical weapons there, and it's just absolutely nauseating to see. And I think Assad's tactics are are horrendous. That in and of itself really isn't a U.S. national objective, as cold as that sounds. Um, but the fact that groups like that, or the fact that that sort of thing is able to happen, is what causes you know refugees. It causes displaced people. That then does become a U.S. national security objective because. With half a million people dead, there's 11 million people displaced in Syria, half of which become, you know, migrants to other countries. That puts a huge burden on our allies there who now can't focus on things because they're dealing with influxes of people at their border. Those places become terror recruitment hotbeds because if you have a camp of I mean not they're all in one place, but 5 million people who are upset, who are angry, and they can be easily radicalized to join a group to say, hey, let's fight back. Um, I know you like to use when you think of these numbers of, you know, what state is that the yes. size of or <laughs> things like that. So, I mean, 11 million people would be the seventh or eighth largest U- U.S. state. Um, I think it'd be the size of about roughly what I have here in Georgia. And I mean, I think maybe two or three times bigger than the new in, in Kentucky. 11 million people on top of the half a million killed. That does become a national security issue because uh, we've seen that those refugee situations can cause varying amounts of problems.
2: Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a Wrinkle Support Skin Supplement Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you.
1: Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both.
2: impacts our standing and credibility in the world to have, I mean, I I hear you that that chemical weapons attack isn't a cause, a direct cause for the United States to get involved. But man, it is hard for me to say that. And it is hard for me to say that when I think about what the rest of the world expects from America and who we're trying to tell the rest of the world that we are.
0: I think for me too, part of the reason that I say in a perfect world, I wish that somebody did something like that. And you do. You take out the airfield they did it from and you say, you know, how dare you? And you you show some moral standing in the world. But I think where I say in and of itself, it isn't. is because I worry that things like, you know, a year ago, President Trump uh, authorized the... we I think we launched like 50-some Tomahawk missiles on, on the airfield. And I like having this moral standing uh, of doing that, I like not letting them think that they can just get away with that. But it didn't really do a whole lot. The airfield didn't actually take that much damage. It didn't really slow down their ability to work. Um, It just sort of showed, hey, we see you. We don't like this. Um, But it didn't do all that much. Um, And I know a lot of people now are, you know, then. but then it comes into... You know, well, President Obama didn't do anything and and everything just ends up coming back to politics where, you know, one president not doing anything at all after setting a red line was bad. But you can't just say that doing something without a strategy to it is better. You know, it's a I won't say it's bad, but it's a different kind of potentially ineffective. Um, and so that's I always end up circling back to it, everything has to be tied to a larger strategy that. The American people, the civilian leadership and the military are all sort of aware of where, where it's going.
2: I wasn't going to get into this because it is so political, but since we're talking about it, I think people have questions about this and it's it's worth a little bit of conversation where I'm coming to. I've been very critical of President Obama about Syria. I am coming around to seeing it as that President Obama was not wrong to want an authorization of military force from Congress. I want that all the time. So that was not wrong. It was just, it just felt like such a dodge because we were doing all kinds of other things without that authorization from Congress. And so why on this issue where he had said this is a line and the line had been crossed, did he refuse to do what he was doing elsewhere without congressional authorization specifically, and and then I look at the action from President Trump, which I was supportive of, and I see your point that it was kind of a slap on the wrist to put it in civilian terms, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm not sure what the answer is here. I wanted to ask you about a tweet that uh, Carrie Boyd Anderson, who we frequently talk with about. Uh, foreign policy issues, retweeted from Nicholas Burns at Harvard this morning. He said, Trump needs a Syria strategy. And there are five components. So I'd like to to get your take, Jason, on if these are the right five components. One, stay to defeat ISIS. Two, help Syrian Kurds hold the East. Three, do more to aid refugees. Four, form a coalition with Sunni Arabs, Europeans to balance the Russia, Iran, Dynamic in future peace talks, and five call for war crimes tribunal against Assad.
0: And this is again probably where I'll just restate again that this is Jason right. speaking for himself based on what right. he's seen in the world. But you know, the first one to defeat ISIS, obviously, I think that that's a given. Um, on top of just the importance, I think of defeating an organization like that because of the instability that they cause, and that's the main reason. Um, you also need to show that. Any groups that may have ideas like that in the future, um, don't try it. Uh, It's just, it's not going to work. You are not going to be able to hold land and pretend yourself to be some sort of actual state uh, through the use of terror. Uh, The West is not going to allow that. So I think that's a definite. Um, the, The issue of helping the Kurds is obviously a very highly politicized issue because of how many different beliefs there are and how many different Uh, actors in that part of the world, you know, we're trying to help Iraq get back on their feet and stabilize and they're an ally, but they might not have the biggest uh, uh, desire to want to see, you know, a a Kurdish state or any sort of support going for them. So I won't comment on what the right or wrong answer is as far as the Kurds are related other than the administration should probably spell that out. So that, that there's, so that it's not ambiguous. Um, helping refugees, I think, is the, the biggest thing that we could be doing to help stabilize that part of the world that mm-hmm. is getting hugely overlooked. Because um, I actually wrote something, I think, earlier this year uh, for a group that posts uh, military writers um, and, and can send you guys that link. But talking about that the refugee situation, people kind of see that as a humanitarian issue that is sort of a uh, helping people individually, and it is, absolutely. There's, the, there's just the human nature part of it of how can we let people suffer like this. But to, you know, sound cold and calculating about it, it is a hugely destabilizing factor in that part of the world, like we've talked about, that, that has national security implications. When countries are having to dedicate so much time and money and resource to, to dealing with these situations, on top of the fact that they, they do become terror recruiting uh, hotbeds. So, I think number four, I think you said was the Sunni Arab coalition there. Yes. And I mean, clearly, that's the, you know, right now the Syrian civil war is basically described as the West and every Sunni Arab state versus all of the, uh, you know, Shia led um, states. So essentially, it's everyone versus Iran, Syria, and, you know, Hezbollah, and, and some of those groups like that,
2: and maybe Russia, right? Yeah, At Different yeah. times,
0: which, you know, they're clearly neither. But they, they, uh, they've decided to kind of throw their lot in with with Iran and, and Syria. And so, again, I won't comment on what's right or wrong of, of forming those coalitions and who they're with other than, again, spelling it out and saying, you know, you're either going to support the Saudis and the things that they do or, or not. You're either going to support, uh, you know, the, regi- the groups that are fighting against Assad or you're not. And I think, you know, just like we as American people want to know what our strategy is, our allies that are fighting with us and not just kind of the big ones, the NATO allies, the Western allies, you know, any groups that are fighting a, with our backing in Syria want to know that they, they no kidding, do have our backing. Um, so again, that's just one of those things that I would say, spelling out, letting the world know, uh, you know, people want stability, they want reliability, and they want continuity. They don't want things to change all the time, and they want to be able to count on us when we say that we're committed to something.
2: On your mind outside of politics, Sarah?
1: Kitchen remodel, kitchen remodel, kitchen remodel. And IKEA. I put all my IKEA furniture I purchased while I was visiting Beth and Cincinnati together. Um, still got a few other things to hang up, but my I just my house feels like we just moved in right now. You know that feel like where there's stuff everywhere, nothing's in its place. It's really stressing me out. But the cabinets are now installed, and I'll put a picture on Patreon. And so now we're just waiting for the countertops and we can install the last of the appliances. And I can get my life back.
2: Well, I think that that is very exciting. We loved having you guys at my house. If you haven't gone over to our Instagram feed, you can see all the kid pictures because we had Sarah's three boys and my two girls together here in Northern Kentucky. I'm also thinking about our travel next week. So we'll be at Walsingham Academy next week in Virginia. We're gonna be spending some time at the school and also doing a community event that is free and open to the public. So you can check our social media feeds for more details about that. From there, we're going to Washington DC for a couple of days. And we have another event in Virginia on the weekend. If you are in that area and have interest in meeting us somewhere while we're there, just shoot me a quick email. We'll see what the interest level is and try to plan something quick, probably on Friday the 20th. So we will be back with you on Friday. We'll continue my conversation with Jason Baker then. We're also going to talk a little bit about the president's relationship with Amazon and the Washington Post, which many of you have asked us about. So that'll be on Friday. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all.
1: Pantsuit Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Support for Pantsuit Politics comes from our listeners. We especially appreciate our executive producers, George Niedermeyer, Tracy Padoff, Nicholas Holland, and Chad Silvers.
2: Our theme music was written and performed by Dante Lima. To support Pantsuit Politics, please visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. Subscribe and leave a rating and review in the Apple podcast player and follow us on Twitter at Politic and Facebook and Instagram at Pantsuit Politics.